maybe these aren't the ones that are going to go bad, but the ones that aren't, that just kind of look like they might go bad, we might actually be able to sell those more effectively, and that can actually reduce some of our numbers too. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, literacy um, in all these different domains, you know, literacy and understanding agriculture, literacy and understanding, you know, the systems in your community, in your having literacy about the media, which you uh, yeah. all these different domains, you know, we all have to uh, take a lot of development and a lot of investments. Um, so it's a long struggle, you know, but it's like, yeah, exactly. These, you know, these platforms know exactly what it's about. It's about getting out these stories and normalizing these ideas, uh, which don't normally get a lot of mainstream attention. Right. Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brendan Black, and in today's episode, we are talking to uh, another guest of ours named Sam Boy. Uh, we had a great conversation about all kinds of things regarding agriculture, the environment, food waste, and just society as a whole and how it's impacted by our food supply. Now, unfortunately, this episode has a bit of a weird audio quality issue going on. Um, we recorded on Skype, and I have had issues with Skype in the past, and I didn't realize until after the recording that Skype also didn't save my mic settings, so it uses my default mic instead of my actual mic, which made it sound really weird. We were having some connection issues. He came across really quiet. It was just kind of a weird situation, so bear with me. We almost re-recorded it, but I just, I liked the the conversation so much I wanted to keep it as it was, Um, so... I really hope you guys enjoy it, and if you have any more questions about anything that that we talked about in this episode, please sure be sure to let me know. But I thought it was a really fun one, and I hope you guys uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. So thank you so much, and go check out Sam Boy. I'll have him plug all of his stuff at the very end, and I'll put it down in the description so you guys can check it out. And without further ado, here's the uh, here's the conversation. Um, basically, what I was saying is that I just appreciate the fact that uh, discovering your work, and it's a shame that food and agriculture, despite it being such an important facet of our lives is something that really just kind of exists as backdrop except when it comes to emergency or yeah no absolutely and that's that's exactly you know that's the whole message that we're trying to push here is that you know agriculture is much more important than it's getting credit for and that it needs to be more of a mainstream topic that gets talked about a lot more than it really is and so i'm, I'm glad that you you know you came to that conclusion you know on, on your own you know even without my content <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah man my um so starting off I go by the name Samboy or El Samboy. Um, okay. It's all relative podcast. And I discuss, you know, news and culture and whatnot, art, media, politics, all that. And while most people I'm sure would very much say that I'm you know, left-leaning, progressive, I try to mm-hmm. take in as many different uh, perspectives on an issue before I give my final. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, in a in a similar boat, um, except a little bit more on on the other side of things. But I, I tend to be very uh, open to at least hearing, you know, and considering what other people have to say on on different matters, and trying to get as many different perspectives as possible. Because um, you know that's kind of a policy with with my show too, is that uh, no one's no one's a, a true expert because everyone knows something that somebody else doesn't know, and so it's worth hearing everyone's thoughts on the matter before you make your final verdict on it. And even when you do, there's uh, constant, you know. Agriculture, just as an example, is a constantly evolving science, and so it's it's worth 
always reconsidering that maybe what you once knew isn't exactly true anymore. And that seems to be the case with a lot of different things in the world. So I'm glad that we can, you know, come come to that agreement at least. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I know when we first reached out to one another, uh, I had to make sure and double back and make sure that talk about mm-hmm. the thing that I wanted to focus on is three elements of food and agriculture, which is food waste. Okay. Technology and mm-hmm. activism, and uh, I guess you could say laws as okay. just how the justice system and law enforcement. Um, it, yeah, no, those are great topics to cover in agriculture. And those are all aspects of agriculture that often get overlooked. You know, people tend to think of agriculture as very simplistic lifestyle. You know, very you know rural, just kind of living out on your farm. And you have like a cow and a cornfield, and that's about all agriculture is. It's definitely a lot more expansive now. And like you mentioned, there's a lot more to it in terms of technology and legislature and, you know, all these different aspects of agriculture. So I'm glad that, you know, we can kind of get into some of that stuff too. So yeah, I'm I'm all for it. Any questions you have, I'll answer with full honesty. Um, I have a full transparency policy on on this podcast. So anything that you are curious about, then I'll I'll be sure to answer to the best of my ability. Uh, So I guess before I start getting into uh, angles I wanted to explore, what was, because I know you said that, that, um, you'll have on people with different ranges of expertise or different levels mm-hmm. of knowledge. Uh, what, I guess, what is your background or relation uh, to this? Is this just a pet issue, something you've always cared about, or is it something that you, you know, in those fields, or what is your proximity to? Yeah, that's a great question. So I started out, um, so I'm 21 years old, or about to turn 21. I'm, I'll be 21 in two months. Um, I was born and raised in Tulare, California, which is right in the smack dab center of California. And I, it's, it's, we call it Cowtown because it's basically just a dairy central. Like everywhere you go, there's dairies. I mean, you can't turn a corner without, yeah, it would be either seeing or at least smelling a dairy. Uh, so I just grew up around agriculture my entire life. And it was never really something that I cared that much about. But I always like, you know, a lot of my family friends were farmers. My, my dad worked in agriculture most of his life and continues to work in agriculture. Um, my sister and brother both worked in agriculture their entire lives and continue to work in agriculture. And so it was something that always kind of like surrounded me, but it wasn't something that really piqued my interest. And then when I got into high school, I got involved in a uh, youth leadership organization called FFA. And I'm not sure if you've heard of FFA, if you're familiar with the organization at all. Okay. So FFA stands for the Future Farmers of America. And basically it's a, a youth leadership organization focused on developing uh, skills like uh, leadership based skills, like public speaking, job interview kind of stuff, um, like team leading, uh, pro- uh, project management, time management, um, like personal responsibility, all that kind of stuff, like stuff that typically isn't taught in school. Uh, FFA focuses on those skills, you know, skills that can they can help you get a job and be a productive you know, society member as, as you, you know, progress through life. And they teach all of you this with agriculture as a roots to to all the lessons. So, like, for example, I learned how to do all my public speaking by speaking about agricultural issues. And I learned how to do my job interview skills by applying to agricultural jobs and practicing with those jobs as backgrounds. I actually have like a, a class that was a biology class, but it was agricultural biology. So we learned about biology uh, from the perspective of, of the farm. You know, we learned about animal biology by looking at cows and we learned about plant biology by looking at corn. And so, like, it wasn't, you know... It wasn't like it was vastly different than what we were learning in regular classrooms, but there was more of a practical element to it because it was more of, you know, this like typically when we think of school, like a lot of the lessons we learn are conceptual. So you have like, you know, calculus and you have uh, like, you know, advanced physics and, and, and you know, all, all these different topics that are really interesting and, and, you know, and complicated, but 
typically students have a hard time applying them to the real world. They have a hard time finding practical applications. Like you'll hear all the time, it's actually kind of like a common joke now is, you know, when am I ever going to use this in life? And like, you know, you have some students actually stop trying in certain classes because they don't see a value in that class in their future career. That was an advantage that agriculture had in a lot of its educational programs was that it had a practical grounds to everything it taught. It wasn't just, you know, this is a concept that is never going to apply to your life. This is your food and this is exactly how we're growing it. And these, all these topics, all these skills apply to the growth of your food and something that you rely on every day. So that was, that was kind of what really drew, uh, you know, kind of dug me into it was that not just that I grew, grew up around it, but there was a practical application to the knowledge I was learning and that I was actually able to use it for something productive. And, and especially because I grew up in an ag town, I was already surrounded by it. So I could apply it to things that I actually saw, you know, in my backyard. And so that kind of stuff was what really got me into it. And as I learned more about like the issues behind it and like the lack of awareness that people have about agriculture, I had a lot of my teachers really influence me to become an agriculture teacher myself. And so that was kind of where that path started on to, you know, becoming the podcast and me studying agri agricultural education and going on to teaching, excuse me, teaching others about agriculture and all that. So I guess you could say that's kind of the roots of where all this started was when I was in high school learning about all these issues and kind of speaking on them. And it just kind of grew from there. Oh, that's incredible, dude. And I love, I love that. And especially you saying that, that you're old, um, it takes a long time for, I'm going to be 32 uh, next month. And, you know, even though I have been interested in these topics and whatnot since you know, say I was you know, 12, 13 years old, you know, it takes stages, it takes years mm -hmm. to accumulate the experiences and the knowledge and, and then also just getting to the guts to actually get out there and, you know, organize and actually participate in the organization and these systems. Uh, a lot of people oftentimes get stuck in the stage of theorizing or, you know, focusing on the conceptual stuff. Mm -hmm. and smelling their own farts all day uh, like-minded people so that's, that's yeah. incredible that's awesome yeah absolutely uh, so yeah so so getting into the topics I, I would say that as far as my foray into uh, understanding food and agriculture specifically um, around the teenage years a lot of people started getting into seriously into whatever they get into and that was the time I started getting into politics and I got my first job um, at a In-N-Out Burger. I don't know how close uh, uh, they are into Central California, but I stay in Southern. I'm from Southern California, about Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, so they're all over the damn place. And, uh, first job, and so I'd go, you know, we'd go to restaurants and done all this stuff before. It wasn't until then that I started to really understand food. Because, uh, mm. you know, of course, you're getting all these different, you know, meats and produce and, and poultry and all this stuff. And Naturally, the question comes about, well, if we're only supposed to keep a certain amount of things for a certain amount of time, even with all the refrigeration and whatnot, uh, then what do we do with the rest of this stuff? And it's just like you're just throwing hundreds, you just see hundreds, thousands, sometimes thousands of dollars worth of food trash. So then the next question starts coming up naturally. Hey, why can't we just give this food to the people who are obviously starving or even people mm -hmm. who we know are working that are struggling to put food on the table consistently? And uh, start to hear all these things about, you know, oh, you know, liability from foodborne illnesses, um, want anybody to sue us and whatnot, have too much attention. Uh, and really what it comes down to is that, yeah, while part of it does come from that fear, that, that fear of liability and everything, somebody who is starving uh, for the most part isn't going to turn away a, a good hot meal. Yeah, they'll be, you know, upset if things don't go right. Um, but preserving food and preparing it right really isn't the most difficult thing in the world. Um, mm -hmm. There's just a lot of stigmas around not giving people free stuff, um, even people feeling like if they didn't work for it, then they didn't you know, deserve it. 
even though we already pay into the system in so many different ways and don't get, uh, you know, saying the full value of our investment, you could say. And uh, that was kind of like the first, you know, instance when I was seeing, you know, seeing these. And, you know, to give you some numbers, it's estimated that food waste around the world is between 25 and 33 percent. So that means at different stages of production and distribution and whatnot and consumption, you know, a good fourth to a third of all food that's manufactured in the world is destroyed. I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get any official numbers on uh, how many people go homeless, or excuse me, uh, how many people go hungry. But in the United States, it's estimated that around one sixth to one fifth of all, all households don't have consistent um, food consumption. You know, whether mm -hmm. it's living in the desert or just not having the finances and whatnot. And you know, you could say that the you know once you start compiling these bits of information together, it really makes you start to it really makes you start to uh, question and get like really more agitated with the system and the laws as they are. Uh, you start to realize that there are certain laws in place that really shouldn't be there, or, you know, there's even something called the 1996 Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Law, which protects restaurants from the liability, from criminal and civil uh, litigation. Um, then you start learning again about, like, the, the cultural stigma and about, you know, people being leeches and drains in the system and whatnot. So that was kind of, like, my initial, uh, you know, stages of coming to and issue and just how how pervasive it is. Mm. Did you have any uh, uh, something to say on that part? Yeah, I just wanted to make sure you were you were finished. I don't want to interrupt you. Um, but yeah, so I think this. So before I get into that, um, because I do have a, quite a few thoughts on on that issue, and it's definitely you you have some really good points. And I want to address them before I get into that though. So is working in fast food your first experience with agriculture or do you like, you know, kind of throwing the question back to you, do you have any background or experience in agriculture prior to the, you know, prior to, to your experience with the, the food waste issue you were talking about? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, okay. Yeah, not, not any, not, you know, not just besides being a you know, regular consumer. We may, I mm -hmm. think maybe we've gone to farms a couple of times uh, and whatnot. I think that was about it. Okay. Yeah. No, that's perfectly fine. I just want to make sure, because I always like to gauge where my guests are at in terms of their agricultural literacy, so that way, if I know, like, if I talk about certain topics, if they're going to understand it, or if I'm going to have to break it down, just to make sure I don't, you know, I don't want to sneak over your head, but I also don't want to talk down to you. So, you know, I want to have a good gauge of, of you know, what, where your knowledge set is at. Um, so, in terms of the food waste, uh, you, you know, just to just to throw a couple a couple more numbers at, you know, on onto your plate that you already mentioned. Uh, yeah, the the food waste in the United States alone is about forty percent, which is pretty huge considering how much food and how many people we have in, in this country. Um, and so, and the United States is one of the worst countries about food waste, but we also have one of the, um, lowest rates of like, so like just for example, like the, the, the amount of disposable income that we use on food is such a low percentage in the United States compared to other countries that we almost had the luxury of being able to waste food. You know, like in other countries, they may spend 50 to 60 to 75% of their, of their income on food. We spend like, I don't remember what the, what the exact numbers are, but I think it's like less than 5% of, of our income on food. Like we spend so little on food compared to what we spend on other things that we almost have the, the luxury of being able to waste food, which isn't a good luxury to have, obviously, uh, because there are still some people in the United States who can't afford that or who, who don't have access to it because of one reason or another. Like you mentioned, food deserts is a, is a thing that happens or sometimes it's you know the way the income uh, works in, in certain areas of, of, the, of the country or whatever it is. Um, but the issue of food waste is one that we've been trying to figure out for a while, especially from the agricultural sector, uh, because on the agricultural side of things, we don't like food being wasted either. Um, a lot of the time, 
the food gets wasted on the farm because usually most of the food waste happens at the consumer level. Usually it's at the restaurant or it's at the actual consumer's plate and, you know, they throw away, they throw away leftovers or they, you know, like, uh, let's just say, like, you mentioned some meat goes bad or if it's been refrigerated, it hasn't been refrigerated for long enough or it's, you know, whatever the case may be and you throw it out. A lot of that happens on the consumer level. On the agricultural level, we try to minimize waste as much as possible. It still happens. You know, I'm not going to lie and, and say that it doesn't happen. Um, a lot of the waste that happens on, on the agricultural level, though, tends to happen from the perspective of the consumers aren't going to buy this, so I'm going to throw it out. That's typically the mindset that goes into it. Like, though, it might be, so like, just for example, oranges. You'll see a lot of oranges in stores that don't have any scratches, any bumps, any bruises on them. Typically, that's because they get thrown out before they even reach that point because people are scared the consumers aren't going to buy them. Those oranges may not be there. They might be. They may, not, they may not have anything wrong with them. I actually, so I work in a grocery store, and every day I go through and look at our oranges, and I, I look through and find the ones that have the bumps and the scratches and the bruises, and I leave those there. I just find the ones that have what we call blemishes. You know, they are so they're so bad that the fruit's going to rot like tomorrow, basically. You know, I'll find stuff that has uh, like sunburns on it or it has a uh, split skin or it has like punctures all over it, like whatever, you know, if it's, if it's fruit, that's not going to get all through that out. But everything else, if I have a, you know, if I have a customer that doesn't want to buy a fruit because it has a mark on it, I'd be sure to explain to them like, hey, this mark isn't a bad thing. It means that the insect was biting right here and it didn't pierce through the skin, which is actually a good thing because that means the insect probably thought this was a healthy piece of fruit. So you should probably, you know, it probably tastes better, honestly. Like I actually personally try to buy the fruit that does have a lot of marks on it because it usually means it tastes better. Um, but that's a, you know, that's, that's a thing that we've kind of bred into our society is like this consumerist, you know, we're, we're very cosmetic based with our consumerism. Uh, we like things that look good, not necessarily things that taste good or are good for us. And so you'll see a lot of food waste happening with food that just doesn't look good. It may not have anything wrong with it, but it just doesn't look how the consumer wants it to look. And so that causes a lot of food waste as well. So I think that part of the issue is with you know, agricultural literacy with education, with kind of, you know, helping create this, this stigma of, you know, not all food that looks bad is bad for you. You know, you need to kind of get like, just getting people out of that mindset will, will help fix some of it. But on the side of it that you're talking about, the side of it where, you know, the food that we're already wasting, why can't we give that to, you know, lower income families or homeless people or people who can't afford it or, you know, whatever. I honestly don't see a problem with that. I, you know, I, obviously the liability issue is one that people like to bring up a lot, but like you mentioned, there's legislation that protects, you know, it protects people and restaurants and, and you know, producers from uh, getting hurt from that situation. And like, also, like you mentioned, you know, families that are that hungry aren't going to care. They're going to, they're going to go for either way because it's either they get sick or they die. Like they, they're going to have to pick one. And so you'll see a lot of that, you know, I, I personally can't really tell you why we're not getting more wasted food to those to those families i'd be all for that i just think that there needs to be some kind of uh better infrastructure for being able to distribute it because a lot of a lot of the time what happens is if you have you know a bunch of free food and you just say come take it then one person will take it all and nobody else will have any so you need to have some kind of uh better distribution method of, of getting that food out there i think that's part of the issue is that just nobody wants to put in the effort to have the distribution method established and uh another part of it and this is the part that i can somewhat understand, but I also see the other side of it is that people are fearful that, you know, obviously giving away free food is going to de-incentivize working. I don't necessarily see that to be the case as much as some people argue it is. I think that it can be. Like, I don't think that, you know, personally, I, I personally don't believe that everyone needs to have free food all the time. I think that those who can't work or who are working but aren't making enough, they need some kind of help because obviously, you know, 
I like um, the, there's always like the argument that that you know we have a right to food. I personally say that we have a right to life, and that food is is necessary for life. And so that not necessarily that we have a right to food, but more that we have a right to means of of obtaining things that will keep us alive. And so if we have a right to the things that are helping us keep you know stay alive, and we're still not getting them, that's where the issue starts to come in. So. I think that not necessarily providing free food to everyone is the answer. I think that having some kind of a way of, of, you know, still incentivizing work, but still making sure that those families don't go hungry every night and making sure that there's enough food for everyone to go around and making sure that there's enough food that's not going to get stolen or go bad or cause people to get sick. So at the end of the day, like, we're not, you know, we don't want to give, like, you know, our rotten cheese to, to this family that, that's going hungry, you know, because at the end of the day, we still don't want them to get sick. We still don't want them to die. We still have to be careful with our food safety pr- procedures because the United States prides itself in being uh, the, fa- the safest food supply in the world, and it is. Um, but there still needs to be some level of control in how we regulate the, the food that's wasted and the food that we shouldn't be wasting that we can put somewhere else. So I don't know if that answers your question, but those are kind of my thoughts on, on the matter. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was just a question. I just wanted to, you know, get your feedback um, on that point. It's bulldozed through the. I have a tendency, I've noticed sometimes, because uh, I'm used to rambling for like 90 minutes by myself on my own cast. So I just want to make sure I didn't do that. Oh, yeah. But no, but I, it's like, I, you know, I like those points. Um, I fully, you know, agree with them. And that, you know, yeah, there's, there's, there's that other side of, you know, the consumerist angle and people's obsession with, you know, cos, you know cosmetic thing and concern over blemish. Mm-hmm. Because even myself, you know, what I'm saying is I try to be, you know, conscious, more conscious than the average person. It's like, mm-hmm. I can go into my fridge right now with the fruits and vegetables that I just picked out and I picked, you know, the prettiest ones that I could find. It's like, <laughs> um, yeah. it's, so it's like, that's definitely a factor. As a matter of fact, have you heard of a company called, uh, I think it's called Ugly Produce? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it's a non-profit or just like a small operation or whatnot, but basically what they do is that all those fruits and vegetables or produce, like you mentioned, that have blemishes or that seem unsightly, they get them, and to those who want them, you can hit them up, and I don't, you know, pay a, a smaller fee, and they will deliver to you uh, some of these vegetables and fruits and whatnot that are, you know, fully, you know, good to eat, but that get discarded before they even hit the shelves at grocery stores. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I, don't how, I don't know how prevalent they are. I've only heard about them in the L.A. area, as I know. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've never heard of them. That's actually a really interesting concept, though. If we can get more stuff like that going, or at least more you know, some kind of like, like education program to get the word out there that, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have the answers on how to actually implement it, but if we could find a way to push that, you know, that idea that ugly food is not bad for you thing, you know, that like, you know, just cause, just cause a, a banana has got a little bit of brown on it doesn't mean you're going to die or that, you know, if, if an orange has a, has a scratch on it, it's not going to, it's not going to make you sick. Like, you know, if we could have some kind of way of pushing some of that kind of stuff more effectively then that'd be great i mean that's kind of what i'm trying to do with the podcast is to try to get more of a conversation about this kind of stuff happening in general and so maybe that's the place to start is just trying to have more conversations trying to get more engagement and that, that's why i mean I, I try to do that everywhere i can i teach my customers that i teach you know my fruit and about food and you know trying to teach people that like you know just because this looks funny doesn't mean it's bad don't you know don't throw it out just yet that kind of stuff, like, and if you teach, you know, if you, if you explain that kind of stuff to someone, they they understand it and they actually appreciate it. But like, it's just, just for some reason, like in the, the you know heat of the moment, just like buying food and just going, our brain almost like shuts off and we're just like, oh, that one looks pretty. I'll grab that one instead of actually like, taking the time to think about, okay, well maybe I should try to buy the ones that aren't as pretty, just because of it. If I don't, they might get thrown out. 
And as we start to move towards that, we might actually move to a place where we don't throw out the ones before they hit the shelf after all. Like maybe we throw out the ones that are going to go bad, but the ones that aren't, that just kind of look like they might go bad, we might actually be able to sell those more effectively. And that could actually reduce some of our numbers too. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, literacy um, in all these different domains, you know, literacy and understanding food and agriculture, literacy and understanding, you know, the systems in your community and your mm -hmm. country, understanding, having literacy about the media which you consume. Uh, yeah. All these different domains, you know, we all have to uh, take a lot of development and a lot of investments. Um, you know, so it's a long struggle, you know, but it's like, yeah, exactly. These, you know, these platforms are exactly what it's about. It's about getting out these stories and normalizing these ideas, uh, which don't normally get a lot of mainstream attention. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that there's another point in the food waste conversation that you, you didn't exactly hit on it because I, I wasn't sure if you were trying to go more domestic or, or broad range. But another point that people often bring up with the, with the food waste conversation is um, obviously, you know, there's like the whole issue of like trying to solve world hunger and you have all these countries full of people who are spent, like I mentioned, like, you know, 50 to 75 percent of their income on food alone and half the time they don't even get enough. And you have like, you know, developing countries that their citizens are uh, not just starving, but malnourished. You know, they're, they're, they may be getting enough food, but they're not getting enough nutrition to, to keep themselves sustained and that kind of stuff. Um, there's reasons why we can't give them food as much. I mean, there, there's still ways that we can help, but there's reasons why we can't just give them all of our, like, there's always like the complaint of like, you know, like when you were younger, your mom, your mom might've said like, you know, eat, you know, if you don't like, if, if you don't eat that, somebody is, is starving in Africa, they'd love to have that. Why don't you give it to them? It's like, well, it's not that simple. There, there's reasons why we can't just give them food. And that's, I, I wanted to bring that up just because, you know, in case anyone's listening that has that question of like, well, why don't we just give it to the people who are starving in other countries? It's like, well, we could, but there's a lot of issues with the trade regulations between these countries. There's a lot of issues with the public relations between these countries. Like it's not as simple as we can just drop a, you know, drop a crate in, in, um, you know, in one of these developing countries and, and feed a family or, or feed a whole village. Like if we tried that, we might get shot down because like there's, like there's heavy, um, there's heavy amounts of, of governmental control in some of these developing countries that are causing a lot of trouble for these citizens to be able to get up and, and you know, and be able to, to get some of these resources. And that causes a lot of issues for us to be able to get resources to them. You know, like we may want to give them all of our, all of our, all of our wasted food, but because of the way our, our trade regulations are, are structured and because of the way our relationships with those governments are structured, we literally can't get the food to them without either being stopped at the border or without getting some in, in some kind of trouble. We don't want to start a war with a country that you don't have any business getting into a war with. Right. So, so I don't know if you didn't bring that point up, but that's just something I like to address for the world, you know, for the um, like the world hunger slash waste. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, you, 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 no, but that's an excellent point. And, um, you know, there have been humanitarian efforts undertaken by the U.S. and plenty of other countries, um, you know, forever. There's always been different mm -hmm. efforts to try to, you know, to do this with varying levels of success. And in addition to the reasons which you stated, which is, you know, more of the relations between the uh, heads of states, um, you mm -hmm. also have the issue of that, you know, developing countries, part of the reason why they are developing is that they don't have, um, they have power vacuums or they don't have, right. they have, they still have competing factions for, for, you know, heads of state or heads of communities and whatnot. So there's plenty of stories of examples of, we do drop off a crate, right? Like it lands where it's supposed to land and whatnot. And it will land in a place that is essentially disputed territory for the peoples that are living there. So you could just be a regular mm -hmm. Go and get this pound of rice or this pound of beans and everything, and then you have like you know, say militia members coming to you from this side, 
you know what I'm saying, telling you to give up the goods or whatever. And then you got like officials on this other side, you know, so, so, you know, the smaller dynamics, the local dynamics of, you know, sometimes, right. places, sometimes these places don't have those um, stable institutions or whatnot that allow for the distribution of, of these goods and services to the people that need them. You know, in addition to yeah. those, you know, larger ones concerning, you know, mm-hmm. geopolitics and, and international relations and whatnot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's a big, you know, that's a, that's a very important point, too. And, and another thing on, on top of that point is, you know, not only are they having a hard time establishing uh, political infrastructures, they don't have technological infrastructures to be able to, you know, maintain that kind of society anyway. So, you know, they, they don't necessarily have the same technological advancements that we have in terms of uh, being able to maintain, you know, I mean, that's that's a large reason why agriculture in those in those, you know, in those areas has a hard time main, uh, sustaining itself anyways, is because they can't store water, they can't store food, they can't store feed for their half the time. Like they have a really hard time uh, maintaining a lot of their agricultural production and maintaining the food that we do give them just because they don't have the technological infrastructure to maintain it. And like you said, a lot of that has to do with either you know power vacuums or just domestic, you know, um, domestic uh, disputes that are not really our business to, to regulate. And, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to prevent wars on the national scale, on the global scale, and on the domestic scale. We don't want them to have any civil wars because of something that we did. You know, so there's there's a certain level of liability that we had to have for our, you know, for our involvement in these political, in like these foreign affairs as well. So, like, that's, you know, that, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this goes into uh, the next strain of this conversation, which is uh, food activism, you know, or efforts that people make um, mm. to provide, you know, saying food for themselves or for others. Um, I'm not sure if you, uh, if you're, I'm not sure how much you're on like social media, especially Twitter. Um, uh, but you know, there's obviously a ton of, you know, activity and whatever going on, you know, going on there, lots of different documentation. And mm-hmm. one of the things that took place was in Portland, Oregon. Um, there was an activist group that went by the name Riot, Riot Ribs. And essentially what it was is that, um, I think, I don't know if it was in downtown or downtown Portland or some other area. Uh, they basically established, uh, I guess, like you say, just like a public, you know, potluck or whatever. Right? Where, you know, people are cooking and preparing different foods and whatnot and just giving it, you know, serving up plates, you know, saying to whoever's, you know, coming and getting it and whatnot. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure about, you know, if there were any disputes about it, if they needed like um, if they needed permission, if they needed to get, you know, a license to do that and whatnot. Uh, you know, overall, I see that as a positive thing. Uh, but unfortunately, the reaction to it uh, was extremely negative. You know, Portland is a city with a lot of, uh, you know, political strife between, you know, left wing and right winger. Mm-hmm. I should say far left, and far right uh, uh, reactions yeah. and whatnot. And, uh, you know, being as this, you know, group activity was seen as being associated with left wingers, uh, the far right, uh, you know, will come through and, you know, ransack the shit and attack, you know, attack people and whatnot. Uh, not saying that they were necessarily ones that always provoked it. Um, but this thing that could have benefited anybody of any you know background that has come up and gets food, I think you know mm-hmm. really did a disservice overall. And then you also had incidents where the police would come through and not just shut down uh, the food being made, but that they would pepper, like you've seen footage of them pepper spraying the food, making it inedible. So yeah. you know this, this really just um, you know sociopathic and just destructive and just showing that they really are against you know people getting uh, uh, the basics of of you know necessity you know meat. But they have to yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, I think that you you touched on a really good point, and that kind of ties into this idea that I've been working on about how food is kind of like the the whole point of this podcast is that you know to 
kind of get the idea across that food should not be politicized. That you know, food is is if we can't agree on food, we can't agree on anything basically because like food is like the one thing that we should be able to uh, to agree on because we all need it. And the amount of politicization that has gone into our food has just proven that you know we we really can't be on the same grounds for anything for any particular you know reason. So it's it's kind of you know to you know to your point, it's it's interesting to see that different political groups can't even agree on how food should be distributed, if, if food should be distributed in certain ways. Um, and, and a lot of that might not have anything to do with the food itself. It might just be, you know, because those groups just don't like to see each other do anything semi-productive. And, you know, like, so it's, it's difficult to, it's difficult to say that, you know, one, you know, one side just doesn't want people to have free food and it might just be one side doesn't want the other person to be giving away free food. And so it's like, you know, it's, it's hard to say where the line is on exactly the reasoning behind those actions. No, no matter what, they're wrong. You know, you know, no matter what, those things should be prevented, and we should have you know better ways of, of going about having those interactions. You know, with the like, like it's like the community potluck kind of stuff. Although that does make me think of the um, like back, you know, back when they were having the uh, I can't remember what company it was called the the micro city inside Washington. Um, oh, jazz the autonomous zone. Yes, yes. Um, the, how, how, like the first few days, they had like a like a, a, um, a massive like stack of food for people to just take wherever you know whenever they needed it, and then homeless people came over and just took all of it at once, and like nobody had any food for like the entire time. Like that kind of stuff is, is you know usually the example I cite too whenever we whenever we go about talking about community food sources because in theory that you know they they they're a good idea, but that that they can have flaws, and so I think that in you know in Citing both of those instances, you can show that we need to have a better conversation about how to handle our food and how to distribute it properly. I think at the, at the end of the day, it all goes back to infrastructure. You know, like if you have proper infrastructure to handle these kinds of things, then it, it makes it difficult for groups, whether they be homeless people or, or political activists or, um, you know, police, whoever it is. If you have proper infrastructure to have effective distribution, then it makes it more difficult to shut those kinds of things down. And so I think that a lot of what goes into making those kinds of successful is just, you know, planning infrastructure, you know, having having uh, some kind of support from, you know, local like community members that, that can actually benefit from, you know, from like maybe like, getting like, you know, the, the city council on, on board with it or getting like your mayor on board with it, which I know is a difficult thing to do, but like having that kind of support can make it easier to get that kind of stuff done. So um, that's not to say that, you know, those those people were um, in the wrong for trying to do something without permission, basically. But like, you know, I think that we're we're not in a we're not in a good place to go about having those kinds of interactions happen until we figure out a better way to have the conversation about whether or not they should happen and how we should go about doing them if we are going to do them at all. So I don't know. It's it's kind of a difficult you know that that's a difficult place to go because you know like I said, food is just it's such a useful and important thing to have. It's just like anytime we talk about it, it's like well we should be all on board for this, but it's like every time we talk about it, we all, we end up getting on the wrong page for things. So I. I don't really know what the right answer is to how we should about talking about this. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I tend not to think that there's one final, you know, answer, because like you said, mm. while I agree that, you know, infrastructure is obviously a key component, we also acknowledge that, um, you know, the literacy and the cultural, um, you know, leanings, or um, I guess you could say the beliefs and whatnot are important as well, uh, because you could have the infrastructure there, but if right. you have a group of people operating within or outside of it who don't share those same inclinations, then the infrastructure can, you know, also fall apart or just, you know, lose its integrity. And that's, you know, plenty of, you know, we see that as well. 
And one thing that I will say is that uh, one of the critiques that I have of my of, of my peers on the left, um, especially those who consider, call themselves anarchists, is they shun hierarchy and infrastructure to the detriment of of the movement. Because mm -hmm. as you said, you have this thing. It's yeah, it sounds nice, but you know when you just say, oh, we have a pallet of food, and you're just like, and because what the assumption is, oh, everybody's going to be reasonable and considerate of those around them. You're not thinking about the fact that if you've been starving and you've been on the streets or something like that, that, you know, you have that, um, I forget the exact term, but you have a starvation mindset or whatever. You're like, oh, I'm mm -hmm. not able to get food for tomorrow. So naturally, you're going to go and get, you know, saying three or four, you know, saying worth of supplies. You only should got one or two. And that's right. where, you know, that's where being too lax in terms of establishing hierarchies and embracing infrastructure, um, you, know, you know, so that's so, so, you know, there's. Yeah, it's a multifaceted issue, and there's no one singular answer. It's 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 more like we have to hit um, different angles from inter internally as well as externally. You know, because they have mm -hmm. to be have to be yeah. you know has to be like a circuit. They have to be reinforcing one another and feeding off one another. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and that's you know solid point. And I think that you you definitely have have you know hit the nail right on the head. And there's a lot of there's like you said there's just a lot of different there's a lot of different moving pieces that need to be accounted for whenever we're, whenever we're going about, you know, doing these kinds of things. And I also think it's interesting to talk about the difference in place that we, you know, when, when we talk about food, we talk about very different sides of the food chain. So like, you know, typically when we talk about, you know, uh, world hunger or like homeless people not having access to food or, you know, low income families not having access to food or food waste or any of that kind of stuff, Typically, we think of food as its final product. We tend not think about food on the production side of things, where really that might be where, where we're missing the mark a little bit. And that's not just because I'm, you know, I'm an agriculturalist, but there's a lot of small-scale farmers that really enjoy helping the community and have no problem getting food to people who need it. And so I think that you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about, like, you know, like we mentioned with the literacy thing and having a conversation about the food itself and what it goes through to get to where it is. There's a lot to be said about how the food is grown too. Like that literacy can't just take place in, in you know what the, what is on the shelf, but also how to get to the shelf. You know, literacy has to start with at what point was it put in the ground, what happened to it while it was in the ground, and then what happened to it every step of the way until it got to your place. And so that's I think part of the reason why a lot of these things are kind of getting misconstrued is because people aren't thinking of food as as what food is. They're they're thinking of it more as almost like a like a symbol of value or a symbol of, of, of wealth and that kind of creates you know some some false you know or not not necessarily false but it creates like like tension between different groups because you know they, they see food as a power symbol when really like food is you know like like i've like i've been saying the whole time food should be a unifying thing not a not a dividing thing and and so like i think that you know what i try to do on this podcast all the time is just try to bring more attention to the agricultural side of things um, I think that having more conversations about where the food comes from and what goes into it and what the farmers do for it and all that kind of stuff could be beneficial to not just the people who are consuming the food, but the people who are trying to distribute that food too. Because like I mentioned, I actually know quite a few local farmers. Um, so right, right now I'm living in Fresno. I, I'm, I'm, you know, a little bit, I'm about an hour north of where I usually, like where I'm, where I'm from. Um, we, we do have an in and out here. We have an in and out in, in Visalia too, which is right next to my, which is right next to my hometown. But um, we have local farmers that are small scale farmers and they are, um, I can't remember what exactly the term is, but basically they, they run their operation where they, like, let's just say, actually, I know one that's a, it's a hog operation. So they have their hogs, you know, they have like all, all their swine or whatever. They don't, um, 
they don't butcher them and send them off to be packaged and off to the store. They butcher them all in their same operation and they sell them at their doorstep. So people can come in and they can they can actually pick a pig. And actually, that that's what the website is called, pick a pig. And they can you know go through the through the entire uh, like operation, see what they do, see how the whole solder process works, see how clean it is, all the all the processes they go through, and then they get to buy the meat at the end of the day. So like having that level of interaction with the farmer is also it's it's cheaper it's it's safer because you know exactly where it's coming from and what went into it um and not only that it can be a much more beneficial from, from a community level a much more beneficial source of food for for everyone involved so like i like that, that i actually know that those people sell to lower income families and you know certain certain because those lower income families can't work in the store so they go to the you know to the local farmer farmer can get them you know their their healthy source of of you know meat and and vegetables and stuff like that for a lower price so like having more community involvement with agriculturalists can be very beneficial to you know to this exact issue that we're talking about yeah that's like a farmer's um that's more of like the idea of like not necessarily farmers markets um but i mean that's more like vertical integration where everything they sure. handle everything from top to bottom um but yeah but that idea of that the the people who are making it are able to engage with the community engage with the businesses one on one instead of having to go through all these middlemen um mm. and a point that that I'm sure you'll be able to espouse on more cuz I don't have hard numbers in front but you know companies like corporations I should say more, uh, like Monsanto um mm. you know, their reputation and um you know their presence has become only more pronounced over decades and and while there have been plenty more documentaries they've also uh come to monopolize the market of food technology, um, and like I said, even though I don't have hard numbers, it was amazing to me that you know, being somebody who was raised primarily around uh, different, uh, 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 you know, urban centers and whatnot, metropolitan areas, yeah, have this stereotype in my mind that like, oh, all these farmers are just you know undereducated or or you know they're all poor and whatnot, and realizing that no, that in order to be a farmer, especially as it is today, last several decades, you have to be well educated. You have mm -hmm. to have uh, a lot of different skills to be able to handle all the different components of the business. But then the other issue is that once you once you start to get to a certain level, you have to go play ball with corporations like Monsanto. And then that comes with quotas. That comes with having to respect their intellectual property. Um, you know, they have those, uh, was it, Terminator seeds? Um, yep. there's, been, there's been different legal battles concerning that over the years, and I don't know where it stands at this moment, but... Just the idea that that you could take a you could buy a you have to buy seeds to produce food that only last for, that are only good for one use, one use and they're done and you know and that's to maintain the the wealth for, of the patent that the corporation holds. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is maybe something that you could probably espouse on a little bit more. Is there uh, you know other numbers or other legislation you know of or other you know figures in the game that that's. Um, that come to mind uh, concerning this angle yeah definitely and so that that's that's probably one of the biggest aspects of the agricultural like that's that's basically where agriculture comes into the mainstream conversations like after after all the people i've talked to on this podcast about agriculture their number one question every single time is big farming versus small farming what's the deal and that's always a common question because people always want to support you know the local small farmers which is great i think that that's Perfectly fine. That's always, you know, a good thing. And coming from a, you know, from a small farm town, that's something that I'm, I'm fully on board with. I think that there are definitely some 
truth to the things people are fearful of when it comes to corporate farmer. There's definitely some uh, misconception coming in. It's kind of the one that's in hot water right now. And I don't know the current position on all, all, the, all the legislative battles. I just know there's a bunch of them. Um, but Monsanto's in trouble for a bunch of different things. I mean, yeah. like, not, not just the, but they're, they're in trouble for quite a few things. And I actually know that Monsanto as a company disbanded. And so they, um, they disbanded into several smaller companies that all are still run by the same people, but they have different names now. So they can, they can, you know, continue their practices basically without getting sued to the ground. Um, and so that kind of stuff happens quite a bit. Because agriculture is not supposed to be monopolized, and that's kind of like most company, you know, most industries aren't supposed to be monopolized. Like none, that, I don't think there's any industry that's built around being monopolized. But agriculture is one that you really have a hard time monopolizing because if you do, it starts to cause really big issues for you. Um, and that's something that I think everyone pretty much universally agrees on, except for like you know large scale CEOs that don't really um, have as much consideration for the, for the smaller farmers. But those you'll find are kind of few and far in between in, in the agriculture sector because agricultural CEOs are different than uh, like your average business CEO. And the reason for that is because typical agricultural corporations are often LLCs, which I don't know how, how much you know about, about uh, business, but LLCs are conglomerate um, organizations. They're not so much massive companies that own a bunch of smaller companies. It's more so a... You know, it's like it's like one hub that a bunch of companies feed into. So it's like the smaller companies control the larger one, not the other way around. And so basically agriculture has designed itself that way to benefit smaller farmers. They, they try to do that so that way you don't have to corporatize to be able to compete in the markets. Um, sometimes they still do. Um, and that's, how, that's why we're seeing the amount of small farms dying out and the amount of larger farms increasing is because most small farms are actually being bought out by larger farms. But the misconception starts to come in when people think that those larger farms are what people like to call factory farms. I personally don't believe that factory farming is, is an actual thing, at least not the way people tend to think of it. Um, factory farming is a kind of a weird term that gets thrown around a lot that doesn't exactly have a definitive def, you know, definition because people tend to change it a lot. Um, but the way that people define factory farming and corporate farming, they tend to be kind of similar. So people tend to think of factory farming as Corporate farming, or rather, you know, the other way around, they tend to think of, you know, what what they think is factory farming is actually corporate farming is probably a better way to say that. Um, but really, at the, at the end of the day, corporate farming is is in the small minority of, of farms. Um, Ninety eight percent of American farms are actually family owned, and and they may be considered large farms or corporate farms, but they are family owned farms that are still somewhat small operations. You know, they, they may be large in, in size, but they're, they're small in staff. You know, the, the actual people who are running it are, you know, the same people that have been running it for generations. It's not like it's, you know, it's, it's not like it's, it's a hundred different, uh, like CEOs that, that are all like faceless and, and you know, you, you know, you'll never know who they are. If you buy your product from a specific farm, you'll know exactly who the farmer is, who his wife is, who his kids are. Cause like the farmers take a lot of pride in, in their work and they like to be known. And so, the 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 you know fear of like corporate farming tends to kind of get rid of that idea that family farms can be corporate too. They corporatize for business reasons, not for size reasons. Although usually size has something to do with it. Um, but that's that's kind of a, a tangent off off on another thing. But um, going back to the Mon to the Monsanto issue, you know, going back to the you know the legislative battles and all that kind of stuff and the issue with with large corporate farming agriculturalists are trying to to avoid that kind of thing too they don't want monsantos they don't want massive corporations that are obviously taking over all like like you said there's the there's the um, intellectual property issue that, that comes into play 
Um, there's like John Deere. I actually just found out about this recently. Apparently, John Deere um, had this massive like lawsuit issue with a farmer who uh, like rented a tractor from them or bought a tractor from them or something like that. And or I, I, th I think he was renting the tractor first. And then when he was using it, uh, one of the one of the discs on it broke, and so he would replace it with his own disc because he like kept calling them, they didn't answer, they wouldn't they wouldn't come out and help him. So he replaced it with his own disc, and when he returned it, John Deere sued him for changing something on their tractor, and so he he actually ended up winning the lawsuit. He had to buy the tractor, but he got the money for it too because he you know he was in the right because they didn't. Like he, they refused to help him, even though he asked for it, and so he he did it himself, and he got in trouble for it. So he he won the lawsuit. But that kind of stuff is the stuff that that you know hurts the small farmer farmer at the end of the day because they don't always win those. You know they they like you have farmers that get sued for you know stupid things. I mean farmers get sued sued for some ridiculous stuff. Like you'd be surprised the kind of stuff that farmers get sued for. Um, and a lot of times they lose, and they lose their farms because of it because you know they can't afford those you know those prices, and so. You'll see legal battles are becoming an, an ever increasing issue in, in the agricultural world. You know, you'll see a lot of small farmers that struggle to maintain just because they can't keep up with the legality of everything. Um, mostly because of overregulation. Overregulation is a big part of it, but also because of lawsuits and, and other things involved. Um, but the legal world of agriculture is one that didn't used to be that big of a deal. Now it's one of the largest aspects of the agricultural world. Um, it's and like it's is getting to a point where agricultural law like you know like if you were like to go to college and study agricultural law that's that's becoming one of the more popular agricultural majors besides agricultural business and and like veterinary medicine but like those are like the top three right there is like ag law ag business and 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 vet you know vet med but it's like the idea that that much and agricultural technology is up there too but agricultural technology is kind of like on its own like that's not really it's considered an ag major but it's more of like a technolo technological engineering major um, and so that's kind of why it's off on its own. Like it's considered like agricultural sciences and technology, but it's kind of not considered part of that. Right. Um, and it's like also consider this umbrella a different umbrella. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what's funny about it is like I've actually talked to people on here before that have designed um, like they're computer scientists that are not from agricultural backgrounds at all, and they they and they've designed computers for agricultural facilities, or they've designed. Um, GPS is for tractors. They design drones or artificial intelligence systems that are used in agricultural operations. And they don't realize that their job is an agricultural job, that they are agriculturalists by trade, and they just, they are connected through a different part of the industry than they typically think of. And so it's funny to me that like you know, agriculture is so expansive, and yet people tend to forget that their job kind of ties into agriculture too a lot of the time. Um, and so, that again, that's I get on way too many tangents. I, I don't know. No, that's I, great. I mean, you know, that's life, but that's, I mean, but the thing is, that's the nature of the subject and that's the nature of, of life. You know, right. life, you know, life naturally flows in all these different, you know, crisscrossing, <laughs> you know, intersecting patterns and whatnot. So, no, I, lo I love the fact that we're having this back and forth like this. You're absolutely right. I'm, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. It was lagging a little bit there for a second. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I, I was just gonna say, like that's kind of you know, it's it's that's that's exactly how I mean that's just how, that's just how agriculture is. Like there's just so many different paths you can go down, and there's so much expansion to it. It's just it's so easy to get just get caught up in different tangents stuff like that, and you almost like forget where you where you started. Um, but going back to like the Monsanto and, and legislation issue, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add on to that, but that's I don't know if I answered your question. I probably got off on a little bit too you know too far of a of a tangent, but hopefully I addressed some of the points you were looking for. 
No, that was good. I was just asking, you know, because that was one of my, my blind spots, understanding some of the mm-hmm. lease, you know, behind food and agriculture. So, no, you definitely filled that, you know, you definitely filled that in with a lot of um, insightful information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then going off of that, though, into this is part legalese and part technology. Mm-hmm. So as food sources are becoming more disruptive, the population is increasing, climate change um, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, we're talking about man-made climate change or just natural occurrences and whatnot, they're changing. Mm-hmm. We're expecting a lot more migration, uh, a lot of changing in the food, you know, sources and whatnot. And so as a result, we started to see the rise of more um, artificial sweetener sources. Uh, mm-hmm. We're also starting to see more lab-grown and 3D-printed sources of meats. Uh, yeah. You know, I've already seen examples, obviously, of beef and fish and poultry. Um, what is your, pers- I, I guess, I guess, um, what is your, I guess, concerns or thoughts on these emergent food technologies, the companies um, that are behind them? And then as naturally as, as you know, different source or different companies compete and whatnot, some are going to fall off and some are going to, uh, you know, get bigger and grow and whatnot. What are your concerns going forward with these new technologies and how they're going to interface with um, how corporations, businesses are going to interface with governments and with uh, the, the populist consumers? Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good question, and it's a really tough one, just because there's there's so many variables there. I mean, like, there's just, when it comes to science and technology, like, you almost can't, you can't predict anything, just because of how fast things change. Um, my concerns, so I'll, I'll start with my concerns. Um, my concerns are, as we get into newer phases of, of agricultural technology and we and we're going to continue to, to do that because like you mentioned we're, we're we have lab grown meat now we're, we're seeing more artificial sweeteners and artificial uh just products in general um we're, we're seeing a lot more artificial sources of different types of of foods and you know we're even seeing more supplemental diets you know like like uh which we can get into this you know later but um like plant-based diets are often supplement you know supplemented by a, a variety of different nutrients that they can't get from from entirely natural plant-based diets um, so like we're seeing a a wave of non-natural food like that's that's starting to become the, the new thing is is our food is becoming less and less natural ironically enough because everyone wants it more natural now we're getting it less natural um but it's just you know that's how that's that's consumerism for you um but I'm concerned about a couple of different things um my my primary concern and and this is kind of tying into the lab grown meat thing is that by the year 2050, they're estimating that our world population is going to jump from, right now it's about 7.9 billion, it's supposed to jump up to about 9.8 billion by 2050. Um, So we're going to be close to 10 billion people within the next 29, 30 years. And we're estimated to have to be able to grow, we're going to need about twice as much food, like 50 to 70% more food than, than we have now, just to be able to sustain that much of a population. And that's on less land with more regulations, with more environmental factors that we ever had, um, with, you know, obviously newer technology, which is going to help, but, and also less people that are presumably less people that are, are going to be as knowledgeable about how that food's grown, which in turn results in more regulations and more like difficulty in, in growing food. So like, like, for example, the entirety of the organic market is based off of people not knowing much about agriculture. And that market, well, that's not the norm. You know, we're not basing all of our food sources off of organic growing methods. Let's just assume, for example, that we get to a point where governments start banning non-organic methods of agriculture. We actually have seen similar things happen in smaller countries, you know, like Sweden and Denmark and some of those, you know, like more European countries 
they've banned methods of growing agriculture that include pesticides, GMOs, like things that aren't used in organic agriculture. And as a result, like I actually talked to a Swedish farmer about this in person. Him and I were talking at um, at this this uh, agricultural exposition that actually happens in my hometown. Um, he was explaining to me that Sweden is almost entirely reliant on imports now because they can't grow food anymore. They've they've become so dependent on you know other other countries to grow their food for them just because. They haven't necessarily made it illegal to use GMOs in in their growing methods, but the 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 general public is so against them they're basically outlawed. And so it's not like it's not like that there's a there's a there's a law on the books that prevents it, but nobody's gonna buy your product, so there's no point in, in growing it that way anyways. And there are actually there are actual countries who have banned GMOs and who have banned pesticides and antibiotics and other forms of of what we consider green agriculture that come from the Green Revolution. That was a more recent um, revolution in agriculture. There's about four generations of agricultural revolutions. Um, the green one is the third one. Um, I'll, I'll get into that in a second because that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think that if we aren't careful with our literacy and with our education, we could get to a point like that eventually. I don't think the United States will for a while, but I think that other countries might, and that could be an issue because we feed a lot of other countries. So we may, we may be fine. We may not have to grow entirely organic foods, but let's just say every other country in the world switches to organic and we have to feed them because they can't feed themselves off of how little land they have left. That's going to be an issue because organic food has been proven to not be able to grow as much as, as conventional methods of, of agriculture. You know, they, they, there's actually studies that show that um, like genetically modified crops can grow up to 20% more yield than non-genetically modified crops. And that's in early phases, you know? So like, I think that the, the technology that's developing is really, really good, and it's going to be really beneficial. But if we're not careful with our education and literacy, we may get to a point where that technology doesn't matter anyway because nobody wants to use it. And so I, I'm, I'm fearful of that. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but that's just something that I like to be cognizant about, and that's kind of the whole driving purpose behind my, you know, my advocacy of teaching others about, about agriculture is because the more conversations we can have about this kind of stuff, the less likely it'll be that we'll ever get to the point where we have to basically succumb to what the consumers want and grow food that we can't sustain for long periods of time. And then we eventually run out of food. Um, that's, so that's kind of like a floating concern. That's not like a primary, like that is a primary concern, but it's not a concern that I think is going to be one that's worth worrying about within the next 30 years. Over the next 30 years, the main thing that I'm worried about is lack of land. And as we lose land, it's really hard to get it back. Um, actually, it takes about four to 500 years to just grow a centimeter of topsoil. And if we build civilizations, you know, if we build stores, if we build houses, if we build foundations, that destroys more than a centimeter of topsoil. So it's going to take us centuries to be able to regrow some of the stuff that we built our cities on. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm going to say the more that we do it, the less we're going to be able to grow back. So right. trade-offs. Right. Trade -offs. So trade -offs. yeah, it's, it's not as simple as, okay, well, when we get to the point where we have 9 billion people and we have to grow more food, we'll just tear down some cities and we'll grow food. It's like, no, we can't do that. Like, <laughs> it doesn't it work, work like that. that. <laughs> exactly. No, that's, no, that's, um, no, that's, a, that's a brilliant point. And, you know, that's one of the things which, you know, when you talk to people who are, you know, food or animal activists and whatnot, it's like, it's like, while you may say, yeah, you're making some great points and there is a, definitely a great moral argument. There's definitely a great environmental argument. You know, all these things are correct is that we live, our whole existence is based on trade-offs. So as you said, it takes four to 500 years to develop that topsoil. And for so much of human history, um, we weren't using a lot of it. You know, we didn't right. have the technology, we, our, you know, we weren't as saturated, we, you know, things weren't moving as fast. 
But, you know, within the last since uh, industrialization around the world, um, the pace of growth and consumption and development has, you know, saying far outstretched, you know, thousands of years which preceded it. And so, you know, when it comes to those issues of like having, you know, extra land and stuff, um, you know, people seem to not want to grapple with the fact that if you say, OK, we're going to focus more on building up more cities and everything and expanding in towns and shit like that. OK, well, then you're trading off the ability um you know, seem to have people in these different areas that are fulfilling different jobs, different tasks, uh, such as working in agriculture and food and whatnot, mm-hmm. and representing in those spaces. Or you just mess up the land in general. And so maybe in the case when you have an exodus from cities, when people want to leave metropolitan areas, they don't have anything else to go to. So they're kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then jumping off of that, the reason why I brought that up, the, the emergence of like uh, different issues around uh, technology and, and technology and the laws and whatnot is so you know china you know if, if anything if, if the biggest lesson if there's any one big lesson we can take from like the last decade amongst anything is that the u.s is no longer the bully in the playground that it used to be it doesn't you mm-hmm. know there's plenty of other countries and nations and leaders who are showing that they can you know tackle different causes sometimes more effectively and more efficiently one of the things that china is doing i don't know if it's just last year or 2019 is they sent up some plants, some seeds, whatnot, on a satellite, and I don't, I don't know if it was just orbiting around um, the Earth, around the Moon, or something like that. Yep. But it was the first successful attempt at growing seeds um, off of. I forget the exact term, but not growing seeds on the Earth. Right. So it kind of actually is a is a a sign that one of the other emerging technologies is going to be growing foods. Uh, and whatnot in outer space or co- or colonizing other um, you know planets and whatnot, other terrestrial bodies for mm-hmm. the sake of providing the foods for the growing population without using without having to make that trade off of using up the topsoil on the earth. Yeah, um, which I think is really amazing. And of course, it's like you know, you know, obviously we're talking about geopolitical relations and different you know uh, 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 you know cultural instincts and whatnot. But just focusing on the scientific technology and whatnot. And the implications that it has for a country like China to be making such bold steps in developments, um, while other similar nations that are that are equally industrialized or have the same capabilities uh, seem to be struggling with more lower uh, uh, concerns, or they're or they're hemorrhaging their efforts, like you said, with focusing so much, getting so much caught up in this um, uh, the green revolution and organic foods, mm-hmm. and embrace the fact that oh, this is hurt, hurting our our food yields. And so then you have to focus on other things beyond research and development and keeping up with other competitors. Right. No, absolutely. And you hit a you know perfect point right there. And that's actually where I was uh, wanting to go next to was was the potential of growing food outside of Earth. And so that was something I've actually covered that in a couple episodes before. I did an episode on uh, The Martian, the movie The Martian, and we talked about the potential of actually being able to grow food on Mars. And then I did another episode with somebody who actually worked on uh, one of NASA's projects to be able to grow crops on the moon. And so um, that was really cool. We talked about that quite a bit. Um, I think that we're going to start seeing stuff like that happen more and more often. I mean, we already talked about the lab-grown meat being a, a new technology that's going to start taking wave. I think that it will. I don't think it'll be... I don't think the lab-grown meat will ever perfectly replace our conventional meat. I think that that's just something that's not going to happen. If it does, it's not going to be for a long time. Just because of it's going to be a while before we're going to be, we're going to be able to mass produce it to the scale we're going to need to, and people also aren't going to trust it for a, for a while. I feel like, um, so that's one I'm not super worried about taking over. And even if it does, 
I really don't care. I mean, like, I'm, I'm a diehard fan of, of, you know, classic beef. I'm, I was raised around deep, uh, beef and dairy farms my whole life. So it's like, you know, cattle are kind of my, my bread and butter. I, I, you know, I, I literally this morning walked over to my school's beef ranch and, and hung out with the cows all day just because that's what, that's where my happy place is. I just love cattle. But like, if it comes to the point where we have, you know, where we have less cattle just because we can't have the land to feed them and we have, you know, lab grown meat as a, as a, like a supplement to, to our meat supply. I think that's fine. Um, one of the things that uh, I'll get into, like the the growing food out, outside of the planet thing in a second. But one of the things that, that's kind of a concern in the agricultural community right now is if we go if we go into like lab grown meat and vertical farming and hydroponics and some of those other newer methods of, of growing food, that there's going to be uh, less jobs for people because agriculture employs so many people. They're going to lose, you know, this, we're going to lose jobs as those kinds of methods start to show up. And my argument to that is always that. There were less jobs for people whenever we we invented the tractor. There were less jobs for people whenever we invented, uh, you know, drones. There's like like everything that we have ever done in terms of technological advancement took up jobs. But guess what? Invented more jobs. It it just requires us as a society to evolve technologically and educationally. It just requires our workforce to get smarter and figure out new ways to do things, which we've been doing forever. I mean. The first time that they invented a tractor, the guy who used to pu- you know pu- push the plow, I guarantee he wasn't too happy about it. But as soon as he figured out how to drive a tractor, it probably made his life a whole lot easier. Like there's you know there's there's things that are going to take you know take place of our traditional jobs, but they're going to create an evolution in the job market. It's not going to get rid of jobs; it's just going to create different jobs. And so that's something that I always provide as a counter argument that you know people always say well you know if we if we create lab grown meat that's just gonna get rid of meat farmers it's like no they're gonna have to adapt which they are very very keen to you know farmers if anything are excellent at adapting to their environment that's exactly what their job is is just adapting to everything that's being thrown at them all the time because it's a lot Um, it's ever evolving and in a a smaller case a more consumers you know business small business cases that you think of like grocery stores right and we're Mm -hmm. um, Excuse me. We're, um, you know, just surpassed a year of the of the COVID nineteen, you know, pandemic in the United States, and you know, the impact we've seen on like restaurants and grocery stores, um, you know, reporting a loss of revenue for not being able to serve uh, customers indoors. Um, but one of the things that's come about is that they say, oh, we can hire drivers, uh, we can hire people to handle to interface with different, you know, elements with the consumers and with our vendors and whatnot. Um, you have to adapt. And no, it's not always going to be a one-to-one, like, oh, you lose 20 jobs and you're able to replace exactly 20 jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's with other conversations about, okay, well, then how do, we, how, do we, um, how do we revolutionize other areas of our society to help spur you know, further growth? Instead of just saying that, uh, instead of just holding on to uh, these old way of doing things just for the sake of you know, being stuck in our ways. You know? And that's something that, again, has to happen, as you said, from it has to be a push um, by education, getting people, the consumers, up to speed on this stuff. It has to be an effort by the governments in trying to streamline this and give people the resources and a consistent um, framework to work with. And then you also need corporations that are willing to play ball. Absolutely. Go ahead. No, no, that was was it. If you want to keep going because you're looking up something, that's, that's fine. I'm looking at one number, so I'll make sure I get it right. Um, but yeah, if you if you have more you want to add to that, then then go right ahead. I just want to double check this. No, that's it. Um, I guess one other tangent to go off of that is is um, you know one of the things that Andrew Yang helped to really popularize during his his run for the in the Democratic primary, um, and that was brought up by other figures. Which is, uh, damn it, why did it why did it slip out now? Um, <laughs> but, but is that you get a certain amount of guaranteed income? 
Mm. Um, what's, the, what's the name? It's super. It's gotten super popular. But anyway, I'm sure that everybody who listens to this will, will be like, oh, he's talking about that. Uh, but yeah, but that people, you get people that make up to a certain wage or a certain salary normally and say, hey, we're just going to give you a supplemental $500 or $1,000. You know, you'll be able to spend it on whatever, but it's something that you can, you know, hopefully put towards um, the things which you, which you need in life. And that is to help offset the fact that different technologies, you know, naturally are going to disrupt certain jobs and careers. And, you know, it may take six months or a year or a couple other years for new jobs to, to materialize and replace the ones that were lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think that that's another uh, important factor, uh, you know, people to consider when they want to talk about, oh, you know, this is going to get rid of jobs and whatnot. But it also creates other opportunities, opens up other conversations and allows us to try out different things. Yeah. We don't have to be stuck. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I couldn't find the number I was looking for because I can't remember what the article was. Now, I'm going to have to see if I can go back and find it later. But I vaguely remember when I was doing my speeches uh, back in high school, which was four years ago, um, that there were about 70 million, I want to say. It was either 70 million or 70 billion. I think it was 70 million. Yeah, that sounds about right because there's not 70 billion people in the world. Um, there are 70 million um, jobs available in the United States just for agriculture alone. And so whenever people want to say, like, you know, agricultural evol- evolution is, is going to take away jobs, it's like, we have a ton of jobs that nobody is taking. We need to evolve. Like, you know, like, there's like, there's this concern that, you know, uh, mechanized agriculture, which is, or automated agriculture, which is the newest revolution of agriculture, you know, uh, automated uh, like milkers and you know like we have we have robots that'll actually um, you know check on cows for us and we have drones that can do flyovers and we have machines that can hand pick fruit for us now and all that kind of stuff like people always complain like well that's going to take away so many jobs from you know from immigrants and from other you know low income workers that need they need um, you know a steady job it's like well they weren't taking them before like we 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 invented that because we had no one working there like we need people working there and nobody's taking the job because agricultural jobs aren't really pushed anymore like you know high school you know, high school dropouts or, or people who go to college that don't know what they want to do there's tons of career opportunities in agriculture that nobody looks at and you know I'm not going to say that milking cows all day is a glorious life because it's definitely not but if it'll get you through college it'll get you through college you know or if it'll you know if it'll if it'll keep you busy until you can find something better then do that like there's so many opportunities available and not just in in agricultural like food production but actually like in the sciences, in computer, you know, development, in you know, technology, in law, like there's so many different jobs available in agriculture that aren't being occupied. It's no wonder we're having to evolve technologically, and you know, especially because we have a lot of people to feed and not a lot of resources to do it. And so, you know, like to you know, to your point, as as technology evolves, we're going to see you know changes in the job market that aren't necessarily a bad thing. And this kind of ties back to the whole lab-grown meat thing that I was talking about, and like vertical farming and you know, like these are all like newer methods of agriculture that we're trying to see if they work before it's too late. Like people are saying, you know, like why do we have to try GMOs because we don't need more food right now. We're already wasting all this food. Like we talked about, you know, why why should we be growing more than we than we need? It's like because if we don't test it now and we test it when we need to and it doesn't work, we're screwed. We need to figure this out right now. And like I think as you explain that to people, they start to understand it, but that's not something that's necessarily common sense for most people, which, I mean, I'm not going to blame them for not knowing that because who thinks about food all day besides, you know, me, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's just something that, you know, you have to, you have to keep in mind. I kind of, you know, I even, I, I've talked to some people who are from agricultural sectors that don't really understand. I've talked to people who are, you know, even more right wing that 
they typically agree with me on some of this kind of stuff. They're just like, ah, that's, you know, why, why are you worried about that kind of stuff? It's like, because if we don't worry about it now, it's going to be a big issue in the future. Like, everyone needs to be worrying about this right now. And so I think that the technological advancements that we're making with, you know, being able to grow food on, on other planets and other, you know, on the moon or you know, in the solar system, like however we develop new agricultural production methods, it's going to be a good thing. It may not be the new thing, but it's going to be beneficial no matter what, because it's going to give us more, like, I'm, I'm, I'm all for technological advancement as long as it means we're going to continue to live a little bit longer. Like, I'm, I don't think we're ever going to completely replace agriculture until Earth dies, because that's just how our planet works. But if we have to expand it to other planets, or if we have to produce more methods to, to grow that kind of stuff, or if we have to find alternatives to be able to handle all the regulations and, and the, you know, the urban sprawl, I'm fine with that because that means that we get to keep living a little, you know, a little bit longer. We get to have food for a few more, you know, a few more decades, hopefully, or a few more centuries before we finally blow up. Right before we, before all the trade-offs, uh, before all the trade-offs become unmanageable. Right. Tip over the edge in one way or the other. Right, and that's kind of, I mean, like I could go on forever on a million different things that that have to do with this conversation, just because agriculture is ever expansive and there's so many different topics. But that's kind of what, that's that's kind of what the new thing is in agriculture right now is trying to find ways to make the trade-offs not so drastic so that they don't hit us really hard in the end of the, at the end of the day. Like, you know, right now we're, we're experimenting a lot with regenerative agriculture, which is, which is methods of agriculture that have to do with preserving soil health and preserving the environment that, that benefits the crop, you know, crop health and, and crop productivity. And it's, you know, it's using genetic modification in, in some instances. Sometimes it's not, but most of the time it is. Um, but it's it's actually lowering the amount of pesticides and herbicides we have to use. It's it's lowering the the amount of tillage we have to do. Like you know, some of these methods are being used, and they may not be productive right right now. But once we figure out how to get them working and, and make them productive, it's going to make us be able to hold on to our land for a lot longer and not have to have that like we talked about the trade off where you know we we kill the land right now for some, you know, some, some good, you know, some good yields and, and some, and a lot of money. And then we don't have it for later. Like this way we can, we can hold on to it and the yields will come in time. We just need to be patient with it. And a lot of agriculturalists are kind of on the fence about this kind of stuff, but the ones that are trying it are seeing very, very good results. And so I think that we're going to start seeing that kind of stuff expand too, but that's a whole other topic we can get into. I, I know that I'm sure that you've got other things to do, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. <laughs> oh, no, no, it was good. I mean, the thing is, I'm not even pressed for time, but that is, um, but that's actually all the, uh, all the different points uh, that I had. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so. I, I definitely enjoyed it. And, and you know, it's amazing, um, as you said, all these different, you know, sides to it and how long it takes to accumulate this understanding of mm -hmm. it as it continues to grow and develop and splinter and branch off into these different arenas. And it feels like it's just something like a lot of different areas of life that's always just out of reach. Like you never really reach a final point, um, mm -hmm. full comprehensive understanding or grasp of, of which way to go or what calls to make. You know, it's more of just like, you know, we never know what the next big thing is going to be, but we have to constantly be be pushing and, and testing out stuff and researching and whatnot. And, you know, just kind of take, you know, the results as they come. Yeah. You know, but, but, that, but that, like you said, that 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 main thing across the board is getting people whether it's on the, the side of um whether it's whether it's being on the side of being a producer or a consumer uh, or, or some other mediating force is thinking beyond tomorrow and thinking beyond our immediate needs mm. a lot of people have a hard enough time thinking what they're going to do in the next two or three days let alone you know how they're going to be living their life in 10 20 years 
even though if you ask most people, they'll be like, if you ask them, oh, do you expect to be alive or do you want to be alive and living on this world in 10 to 20 years? And, and the, most people will say yes. You know, has a damn 20, 10, 20 year plan. You know, not even most governments, not even most governments or corporations um, plan that far ahead. Yep. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of the unique situation that agriculture is in is that we're constantly having to plan ahead because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves in a very, very bad place very quickly. Like agriculture is one of the few industries and like, you know, companies plan, you know, like you said, five, 10 years ahead at, at times. But like how many industries are having to plan so far ahead that they are prepared for any potential outcome? And even then they're not prepared for everything. Like that's something that you just you can't account for. There's so many different factors and agriculture you know if if anyone listening to this hasn't gathered this yet agriculture is ever expanding and it's so diverse with how many different things going on in it like somebody who's an expert in one aspect of agriculture can't know everything about everything else about agriculture i mean like i did a research for my for my speaking competitions i started when i was a junior in high school i had a research for four to six, about four to six hours every day for three months before doing before doing my first contest and then i would do it Probably another two or three hours every couple of days for another month or two before my next contest, and then another month of that for another contest. I did that contest for three years, and now I'm coaching it, so I'm doing it still. So for the past four or five years, I've been doing research continuously, trying to expand my knowledge, and it changes. I'm like the numbers I I gave in my speeches five years ago are not the same numbers that are consistent with today's statistics. Like. These numbers are changing constantly, and and the and the information and the technology, everything about it's changing constantly. And like, like I couldn't I couldn't give the same speech I gave when I was a junior in high school today, and it'd be accurate. That that stuff changes all the time. So like, the amount of stuff that's constantly changing with with all of this is just it's it's going to play a role in in how much we are able to understand about about our food systems. And so like, I may think I know a lot about agriculture. I like to pride myself in saying I know a, a, an okay amount of agriculture. I by no means have all the answers, and I, you know, I do my research. There's farmers who do way more research than I do that know way more than I do, and even they know nothing. Like there's researchers that think they have the answers, and they haven't even figured it out yet. Because every time we try something, if it works, great, we do it again. If it doesn't, we go back to the drawing board and try to figure it out. Just like every other, you know, profession, science, you know, our art, you know, practice, whatever you want to call us. Agriculture is constantly trial and error because that's just how we have to be, you know. And that's what that's one thing I always try to say on this podcast is like I throw out a lot of numbers and a lot of statistics and a lot of information. I don't know everything. I I know that what I research is is you know concrete information. But if you don't trust what I say, go look it up and prove me wrong. I'm more than welcome to to, to admit that I'm wrong if you if you can find the, the stuff to prove me wrong. But that's just how it is. I mean, that's like you you can't you. Can't have the answers to this stuff you just got to kind of hope that things work out and, and keep having conversations like we're having and hope that, that something product, productive comes out of it no 100 percent i agree with everything you just said we all you know more conversations more you know exchanging this information and not you know being so hostile towards knowledge that we're uh, we don't have all the answers or that maybe we made a misstep here or that we can improve our methodologies in this respect mm -hmm. being able to have a more buffet style approach as opposed to having more of like a boutique, you know, same type approach or a yep. cart, I guess. Better analogy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more. And like I mentioned, as, as much as there are a million and one other topics to, that we could we could we could address, we, we did cover all the points on your on your list. So I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about, if you had any more questions, if you had anything else you, 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 you were curious about. I'm more than answering or if there's 
you know, enough to make a, a whole separate episode. We might have to have a part two to this conversation. <laughs> No, I but, but um, yeah. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I'm I'm definitely down to um, uh, chop it up with you again. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but that yeah, but that was everything. All the main you know issues I had been thinking about the last couple of weeks and whatnot since we first got into contact. And yeah, I feel like you know I was able to you know get out my points and learned a lot of things and fill in a lot of blanks. Uh, so now I feel pretty good about this. About that. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I, I'm in, in the same boat. I mean, I even learned some things, and that's always a productive conversation if, you know, both people learn something. So I think that that's, you know, I think that we definitely end this with, you know, topics and we came out with, with a better, you know, with, with even better of a conversation than, than I was expecting. So that's, that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to finally, you know, meet up and, and talk about all this, you know, a, a million and one things had to get in the way first, but um yeah, no, that that's awesome. So yeah, I'm I'm glad that we were able to to do this. So yeah, thanks. You know, thanks so much for for joining me for this. It, it's sure been a pleasure to to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, uh, you know, I have genuinely become a fan of the podcast, and uh, my curiosity, you know, my curiosity, you know, uh, reaches you know leaps and bounds in every direction, and I'm so glad to continue, um, you know, down this path of understanding more about food and agriculture, and still remaining passionate about it, and still seeing that there are people who are uh, equally engaged. You know, from it and giving, you know, uh, making their own contributions, uh, you know, that are just as valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely appreciate, you know, your support and 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 the fact that you're a fan of the podcast and that you're interested in learning more about agriculture and expanding your knowledge and, you know, they're that they're that willing to have conversations about it and not just, you know, write it off as well. Somebody else take care of that for me, but it's not important what I think. Like, no, every time you go to the store and buy food, your choice matters. Like, every every time you vote on a regulation that's going to affect the farmer, your choice matters. Because at the end of the day, that's your food. You need to, you know, you need to have a say in it. And so I, it really means a lot every time somebody tells me that they are either a fan of the podcast or that they are interested in learning more about agriculture or that they're, you know, an advocate for agriculture, whatever the case may be. It's always nice to hear that. So it's I'm glad that we were able to uh, to get to that phase. And as as I mentioned, or as I offered everybody, if you have any other questions about agriculture that you know, just come up, or you have an article that comes up, or you see a Facebook post, send it to me and just say like, hey, you know, you, you have any information on this? What do you know about this? You know, can you answer anything? I'm more than happy to answer it as soon as I can on on you know whatever it is. So if I don't know, I'll find somebody who does, and I'll get you the answer. Hell yeah, man, I'm with that. <laughs> awesome. So before we close, I do want to give you the chance to plug your podcast again and let everyone know where they could find you and. Uh, and uh, listen to more of your uh, more of your cool thoughts. I don't. I appreciate that. Uh, L Sambor. That's E L, and then Sambor S A M B O I. Uh, I'm everywhere. I uh, am the host of It's All Relative pod, uh, podcast, where I discuss everything from news to culture, politics, uh, art, and media, while being an expert on none of the above. And you know, yeah. And I, you know, really appreciate the time of you having me. Uh, I... What title do you prefer to go? Oh, it's all good. I was just asking, um, what do you, what title do you prefer to go by? What name do you usually uh, use? Is it just Brendan or? It's just Brendan. Yeah, you can call me whatever you want. I mean, I, I, I answer pretty much anything, but yeah, Brendan's my name. Um, my kind of like online name is Gambit for other reasons, um, but that's kind of Brendan is what everyone calls me. So, okay, all right, no doubt. Well, hey, Brendan, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm more than happy to have uh, a part two where we discuss, you know, even, you know, even more angles and developments uh, concerning food and agriculture.
Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much, Sam Boy, for joining me. It's, it's sure been a pleasure. I, I'd be happy to have a part two. We'll have to discuss that. You know, find another time, probably in a few months, knowing how our schedules work. Um, yeah, but right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, we'll definitely get that worked out. So yeah, thanks so much. And I hope I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this. And you know, everyone go go check out Sam Boy. I'll have all of his links down in the description. So you guys can go find him and check out his stuff. Um, but yeah, thank you again for joining me. Thanks to all my listeners for tuning in. And don't forget, if you ate today, thank a farmer. Mm-hmm.